Hopefully we'll all be part of that. Really something to look forward to. <clears throat> On a little bit of a news note, uh, the lawsuit that Pat and Nelson had filed against our neighbors and enemies uh, who want to take our land from us uh, was dismissed without prejudice by the judge this week. Uh, but there were some interesting things that happened there that might bode well for the future in, in the case that they have against me and against the church uh, and against you uh, because the corporation represents your land, the church represents your land, our land that Christ gave us. And uh, in that hearing before the judge, uh, our protagonists, lawyer admitted that there has never been a legal TIC meeting held and that uh, they did not elect a manager. And yet I'm getting a bill every month from them. keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger for things that no one has any authority to issue a bill. I called it a bogus bill in my deposition last week or whenever it was recently. Uh, so that was very interesting. Also, in dismissing the case, uh, Nelson and Pat were, in the, were the plaintiffs, the ones who filed that one. And the judge said he had sympathy toward the plaintiffs in that case, even though he was dismissing it. And he did it without prejudice so that the information that was in that particular hearing and in that lawsuit can be reused. So uh, those statements by their lawyer that they've never had a legal meeting and don't have a legal manager, I think are very, very important. I brought that up in my deposition. I wasn't supposed to really be saying things like that, but, but I said it quickly and got it out before the lawyers had time to shut me up. So I wanted to be sure it was on the record officially <clears throat> that they had never had a meeting. On the other hand, we did call an official meeting, and we sent it by certified mail, as the TIC requires. We did everything according to it. We all showed up, and none of them showed up. So there are some things there that uh, make their case look really, really, really iffy. So I think that's good news that that happened the way that it did happen. And uh, we'll go forward from there. This is a time of heavy expense, though, because they're doing discovery and depositions and uh, lawyers' fees get heavy during that time. So we'll deal with it, though, one way or another. And God will see us through. And I have no doubt what His answer ultimately is from the Scriptures. And we've been over that, so I won't spend the sermon going over it. <clears throat> well, I think I pretty well, hopefully, got across the message during Days of Unleavened Bread that our God plans very carefully, and He used men of old and worked in their lives, throughout their lives, to lead them to the place where they were able to do what He wanted done. So he has everything figured out from before the foundations of the world 
to the end of this whole scenario when most of mankind apparently will be saved. All Israel, Paul said, and a great percentage of the Gentiles as well. So God has everything under control to Satan's chagrin. But we saw here at chapter 4, before the holy days, when I got down to verse 6, 2 Corinthians 4, up uh, in verse 4, I'll review that. It says, In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine to them. Now, he started that, as we saw during the days of unleavened bread, back in the days of uh, Adam and Eve, in which he certainly deceived the whole world, there only being two people involved, and he got both of them, just like that, at the snap of a finger almost. And he's been doing that ever since. Uh, parallel that with Revelation 12:9, which says Satan deceives the whole world. So God is allowing that. Could he change it? Yes, he could. But he has allowed 6,000 years of blindness that they might be taken and snared and deceived. And he said that in so many words, not only in the prophecies of the Old Testament, but while he was here on the earth, he said, I speak in parables so they cannot understand. Now, he was protecting the world by doing that. Now, he loved it so much that he came and died for the world. He so loved the world, everybody in it, that he came and died for it. And unless you understand the plan, you'd think, well, if he died for it, why didn't he open things up and let them know everything that was good, right, and true, and uh, everything would have been beautiful? Well, the problem is God has given Satan almost 6,000 years to deceive. And he's reserving a short period of that, apparently, to, re- to release him uh, from prison at the end of the thousand years. Now, couple that with what Christ said, that if he didn't cut things short, there would no flesh be saved alive. Now, I don't think he's cutting the 6,000 years <clears throat> short in that sense. Well, maybe a, uh, a little bit in the last year. But he gives that back to Satan. God is completely fair. He said he would cut it short, but I don't think he's cutting the overall plan short. He's probably cutting the year of his honeymoon with his bride and the same year of the seven last plagues short. Because those seven last plagues would finish mankind off if he did not stop it uh, a little ahead of time. And that may be all that God gives Christ at the end of the millennium is a part of a year. As much as he cuts it short, that he will give him back. And he will go out and apparently deceive almost overnight hundreds of millions of people to come against God. Well, Satan is a very, very powerful being. And that's why Paul warns us to take on the whole armor of God and realize that we are fighting against principalities and powers that are beyond our comprehension and understanding, that he has got the whole world deceived. 
so that the glorious gospel of Christ would not shine to them. Now, God has this planned out, as was the theme of the sermons during the unleavened bread, very, very carefully, so that Satan will be bound at the end of the 6,000, or almost the six-year end of the 6,000 years, for a 1,000 years, and then the glorious light of Christ will be shown to everyone. We do understand now that the new heavens and new earth come down at the beginning of the millennium, and the glory of the Father and the Son are the temple of it, and shine day and night, so that the whole world may see the glorious gospel of Christ that they cannot see today. And that most everybody is going to be converted during that time. Now, if they're stubborn, we know from Zechariah 14, that if they don't come to keep the feast and worship the King, the Lord of hosts, they will get no rain. And if they get no rain, pretty soon they begin to think, maybe I should keep the feast, you would reckon. And then... God is going to reach back from the time of Adam and Eve through this whole 6,000 years and raise up everybody, whether they were an aborted baby, a just-born baby, a child, a middle-aged person, an old person, all who never were given the glorious gospel of Christ because of the deception of Satan are going to be raised up, and Satan will be rebound again at that time, and be given the glorious gospel of Christ. And then is when all Israel will be saved, and most Gentiles. We believe that. And that is why we are here today, keeping His Sabbath, and not out eating, drinking, being married, and being merry, for tomorrow we die. We know the seriousness of this, we understand that this is a day of salvation, and being a day of salvation, it's our day of salvation. So it's very, very important that he has only given a very, very few the knowledge of the glorious gospel of Christ. And undeniably, those of us here have been given that. You won't get it in the Methodist, the Baptist, the Church of Christ, the Catholic Church, the Muslim mosque, or the Indian temples, the Hindus, or anywhere else. Only through those God has called and trained to show it to you. Starting with Herbert Armstrong here in the end, and those that were called to do the job following him. It's the only place you can get it. It's the only place it's available on earth. What an incredible blessing to have the glorious gospel of Christ when the whole world, apart from us, remains in darkness. I don't mean just us here in this little room. I mean us in terms of all those whom God has called in this age, many of whom have since denied it, and only a 10% of the many who were called are going to be chosen to finish the work. Now, many of those who have denied are still going to be saved in the tribulation. Before they die, they will repent, many of them. About 30%, Zechariah says, anyway. 
Now, some of the others may have never really understood and known and may not have been converted in the first place, and they may have an opportunity yet in the second resurrection if they weren't truly converted. And I think I've known quite a few people who came to church over the last 65 years uh, who were not converted. So they may not have had their chance at all, even though they may have been dunked, and God saw that they didn't understand, and He didn't give His Spirit, and they may yet have that chance. So God has it all figured out, and I'm sure glad He can make the call on that stuff, because you and I would never get it straight. We'd get the wrong people, and then the kingdom would not be the wonderful, peaceful place that it is going to be when Emmanuel the Christ reigns. So he says, the whole world's been blinded, and we are a few who have had the blinders removed and do see. Verse three, uh, 5, he says, picking up where we left, well, no, quite, verse 6 we left off. He says in verse 5, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Emmanuel the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Emmanuel's sake. So he is what we're preaching. I am just here as a servant of His to help keep you reminded, to, keep, to educate you more, to help you understand what you're here for and what is at stake and what you need to do in order to be glorified someday and be a part of the kingdom of God forevermore. That's what Paul was there for. That's what the ministry is here for today. And then where we were last time, for God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, and that's where we started the sermon series, Genesis 1-1, during the Days of Unleavened Bread. He com commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Emmanuel the King. So he's saying, just as he brought forth light out of darkness at the creation in Genesis, he has given you and me light in our hearts, our minds, the spiritual eye, that we might see what the rest of the world cannot see. In fact, they don't see light in us at all, for the most part, do they? Now, Satan can't. Because he knows the light of God. He knows the Spirit of God. And when he comes after the remnant of the church's seed, when she flees from Jerusalem to Zion, he will recognize them instantly as to who they are, because some of the light of God is in them. And it says that there in Revelation 12. The remnant of her seed that are left behind. Though he'll know who they are, but the world doesn't know. You have the light of God in your mind, and yet your friends and relatives in the world around you cannot see that. In fact, they fight it, because the world does not know God, cannot know God, and does not want to know God. And even people who say they know God, when you give them the truth of God, will turn against it, because they don't want to know the true God. The natural human mind is enmity to God's truth and to God himself. So they have a name that they are Christian, but they don't want the truth of Christ. 
That is the way the mind works. But he's given us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. His face is used, and it is in the knowledge of Christ's faith, and it is through him that we are called. Verse interesting is very uh, verse seven is very interesting to me. It says, "But we have this treasure in earthen vessels." Now he explains to us in First Corinthians fifteen and First Thessalonians four and other places that we are to be made immortal and not be human anymore, but we're to be spirit and spiritual and have a totally different uh, makeup than we have today. We will be spirit. Now, he's given us the light of the glory of God and the understanding, but he's given us this treasure while we are still in earthen vessels, our human bodies. Now, the problems that we have today will be resolved when the mystery of God is finished and we have spirit bodies instead of physical But he's given to very few people his light, his knowledge, his understanding, while they're still in earthly vessels. Just a few of us. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Now, God is working his salvation in us. We do not deserve it. We are not truly equipped to handle it. We don't even understand truly what it is because our minds are so limited that we only understand a smattering of spiritual things, not the fulfillment and the reality and the totality of it. So we sit here, part in light and part in darkness. As he said in another place, we look through a glass darkly. We see some light, but we don't see everything there is to see because it's too wonderful and too great and far beyond our capacity to even imagine. We can think about it. We can meditate on it. We can revel in it and joy in it, and yet we don't fully grasp it and understand it. Well, when it's all said and done, where does the excellency of the power come from? comes from Him, not from us. We can't work out our own salvation. Well, He says to work it out with fear and trembling. But we see other scriptures that also say that He works His salvation in us. We cannot give ourselves salvation. We can only do our part of working out what He has set before us. But He has to give the power, and we cannot resurrect ourselves We cannot change ourselves into spirit, can we? No, we can just be here and deteriorate as an earthen vessel until we do what is going to be done for all men and die and go dust to dust, except for the few that are alive and remain when he returns. But even they are going to shed this earthly body, this vessel, I guess it just dies and drops off. I don't know about the people left on earth. Do do our physical bodies drop back down and smack them? Uh, I I don't know just how that works. 
don't really care uh, as long as we are changed. And it may be that nothing drops back. It may be that it's simply changed from physical to spirit and goes on from there. And that's the word Paul uses is we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. But the excellency of the power is through God. Now, if we have trouble on this earth, we have trouble growing, overcoming. We have trouble stopping sin in our lives. We have trouble controlling our thoughts all the time. It's because we can't do it. Of and by ourselves, we cannot do it. We have to have the power of God that comes through His Holy Spirit. So when you have trouble, what do you do? You call on Him, because He is where the power is. We might have some desire given to us by His Spirit to grow, to overcome, to do what He says we should do, but we can't do it without His power, without His Spirit. Many people have dreamed, and I think I even have a time or two, I'm not sure I'm borrowing this from somebody else's dream, but I, I think I have, uh, when the resurrection comes and everybody's lifting off around you and you can't get off the ground, so you kind of jump and, and try to try to get up in the air and, and you can't do it. Uh, we don't have that power. We can't raise ourselves. We can't pick ourselves up off the ground. Uh, it has to come from Him. So our daily growing and overcoming has to come from Him as well. There's a scripture not too far of us. Oh, it's just a few verses down. We'll get to it. To emphasize that point, he says, The inward man is renewed day by day, down at the end of verse 16. The inner man is the Spirit of God within you, within your mind. And that will dissipate and go away if you do not take care of it. It needs to be renewed day by day. We don't pray simply because the Bible says pray, and therefore we ought to do it. So we do it out of duty. If we understand, we pray because we understand that as a human being, we will not walk in the Spirit unless we go and imbibe of God's Spirit on a regular basis and have the power and the strength to do what we need to do. It has to be renewed day by day. Otherwise, we don't have the power to do what we need to do. We certainly are given the treasures of the glory and the knowledge of God confined to an earthly vessel. And therefore, we have to go to the power from above to grow, to be what we should be, lest we regress and be a sow in our wallow where a dog in his vomit. We cannot go there. So we renew ourselves day by day through his word and reading it and through prayer and meditation. Those tools were given to us to renew ourselves, to increase ourselves, to strengthen ourselves. And then he describes where we are in verse 8. We are troubled on every side. Can you look back at the last 5, 10, 20, 30 years in God's church and say you haven't been troubled on every side at one form or another? 
We are. We're troubled uh, over breakup of the church, false preachers, self-styled preachers, uh, conditions in our lives, health issues, uh, monetary issues, anything you want to name, marriage issues. We're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. In other words, everything in our lives isn't always hunky-dory. It isn't always great. In fact, as we've said many times, many are the afflictions of the righteous through much tribulation into the kingdom. Scriptures we all know and can quote probably where they are. Psalm 34, 19, uh, Romans 12, where that one other one came from. We know these scriptures. We know we're going to have trouble in the flesh. So, this is nothing new. But Paul's putting it in a different way here. The power has to come from God, and even though we have the glorious light of the gospel, that doesn't translate to everything being wonderful and beautiful every day of our lives. We are troubled on every side, yet we don't let it distress us. We don't let it become a negativity We don't worry ourselves sick over it. We go to God who gives strength and power so that we can deal with our troubles without being so distressed that we can't function. People do sometimes get so distressed, so bound up in their troubles and their trials and the difficulties in their life that they can't even function properly. A lot of people get that way. In fact, there's more and more and more getting that way in our society today. So they go and say, hey, I'm dysfunctional. I'm messed up. And I have ADD and ADHD and ADD. That's added all up and add some more to it. So the doctors give them all kinds of drugs to calm them down from the distresses of their life so that they might actually partially function, although drugged up. They don't have where you and I have to go to get relief. So they go to drugs, they go to alcohol, they go to uh, immorality, they go to all kinds of hopeful solutions to their problem or problems. But it doesn't fix them. It doesn't solve them. So we have a drugged society today. And God tells us there in Revelation 18 that we worship pharmacy and drugs. And that is part of the reason that we will be so easily overtaken and destroyed is because we're such a doped up nation that is looking to other solutions than God. So we can be, we can have trouble. We can be troubled on every side. Yet we don't let it distress us because we can go to God, get on our knees, and ask for hope, for strength, for joy, for peace, for patience, for whatever it is, for love, faith. All those things that we lack, we can go to Him and ask for so that we are able to handle by His Spirit everything that we are facing. We have an opportunity and a gift 
that the world does not have? Do we utilize it to the full? Do we avoid God sometimes and try to handle it ourselves and fail miserably? Or do we and are we aware enough that when trouble comes, we go to our knees? And instead of being distressed then, we can be strengthened and encouraged that we're doing the right thing, we're going the right direction, the whole world's deceived except for us, and everything's going to turn out right because all things work together for good for those who love God and keep His commandments. That's just the way it is. So we can take hope and strength What by reading His words. I just quoted you some more of them. There are so many, many scriptures that can strengthen and help us. If you're at your wit's end, go back and read Psalms a while. It'll help. Because David was troubled and distressed on every side. And what did he do? He went to God in heaven to get relief. We'll go to Psalms here in just a few minutes. And uh, because Paul mentions something that David said. So troubled on every side, yet not distressed, we are perplexed, but not in despair. Now, how perplexed is opposed to troubled? Sometimes we look at things in life, we look at the hand we've been dealt, perhaps, and it can be perplexing, confusing. Perplexed means that you are somewhat confused. You have some choices to make, let's say. And sometimes this might seem better, or that might seem better. And if you've got four or five options on the table, and you're not sure which one is the right course, you can become perplexed, uh, confused. And that creates frustration. Now, you and I have faced that many, many times, have we not? whether it's a financial uh, situation, whether it's a job situation, whether it's a marital situation, uh, or other relationship with children or associates or business acquaintances, whatever it is, we have options. I mean, maybe you're not considering it, but you have an option right now of staying where you are or moving to the Philippines or Hawaii or France. Maybe that's not one of the things that you're considering. But there are a lot of people in our nation today who are seeing a lot going wrong, and they are thinking of repatriating to other countries. And in fact, hundreds of thousands of them are doing it as we speak. Going to Costa Rica or Philippines or... I know church people that have moved out of this country knowing it's Babylon and thinking they're going to be better off in a Gentile land somewhere else. Are they really considering things? But they're confused and frustrated and perplexed. And therefore, they, I know some members who went to the Philippines. They think they're doing okay. What about when it's fair game on white Americans around the world? Think you'll be good, good shape in a Gentile country? I kind of doubt it. There's only one place you can go where there will be peace and safety and protection, 
and that is Zion. All the way through the Psalms, it talks about that. Doesn't talk about Petra anywhere. Talks about Zion. Better find the true Zion, better get there. Sooner or later. Because if you're not there, you're going to be in deep trouble. So, I mean, I just bring up one thing that perplexes some Americans. They don't know where to go. Don't know what to do. And you and I face perplexities. But when we are, what do we do? There again, you go to God. You don't despair and say, well, I, I have this, 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 and this on my plate, and I don't know what to do. So you could fall into despair unless you went to God and asked Him to help sort it all out so that in the end you'll find the right answers. They don't always appear immediately, do they? God doesn't always give us an immediate answer. Sometimes we think we got an immediate answer, and it might not be that at all, and we have to think it through. Uh, Abraham and Sarah thought they were going to get a quick answer from God. And they tried and tried to have a baby for decades, and it just didn't work. Now, they were perplexed, I'm sure. You think those two didn't lay in their tent at night and talk about how's this going to happen? When's this going to happen? We're doing our best. Nothing's happening. Year after year after year, but God had promised. So they were perplexed, but they in faith waited. And God kept His word. So it isn't always immediate. Sometimes it is. Sometimes your life's in the hanging in the balance and God gives an immediate answer. He knows what he has in mind. And you can't go wrong by going to him and laying your perplexities out. Another category, persecuted but not forsaken. You're going to be persecuted if you follow God's way sooner or later. Uh, David had all kinds of accusations against himself. He had false accusations against himself. And he mentioned that. Evil imaginations against him that were not true. Now, he had sins, and some of the things he was accused of, he had done. Others, he had not. So, he was persecuted without cause. Now, Christ is an even better example who did nothing wrong and yet was persecuted horribly, and is a living being today, he is being persecuted. Anyone who will use the name Christ is becoming fair game on this earth for decapitation, or their churches burned, or whatever. And it isn't going to get better, it's going to get far, far, far worse as they get more and more control. So, persecuted, part of it. The apostles were, and finally, killed, all but John, by those who persecuted. So was Paul. Persecuted, but not forsaken. You know what the Father and the Son were thinking when Paul was dying at the hands of the Romans? Were they thinking, well, I guess we better get out there and save Paul. He's still got some good preaching left in him. Uh, he's, he's still got a mind. Uh, the church could still use him. 
uh, we better get down there and save him from the Romans. They could have sent some angels down, delivered him. Hadn't they before? When he was stoned, he got up later and walked off. When he was shipwrecked, he didn't drown, he lived. When he was snake bit, he didn't swell up and die. He flung it off in the fire and went on about his business. So the Father and the Son had come down many times and saved Paul because they weren't done with him. But when he went to Rome, he had accomplished and finished what God had for him to do. So they sat back and they didn't discuss going down and saving him. I think they discussed, he's done the job. He's finished his course. He's run a good race. Now he's going to die. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in his consciousness, he'll be here with us. I think they were very, very happy to see Paul die faithful. There is a scripture that says in so many words that God joys at the death of his saints. That's not the, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that's the essence of it. Because he knows they finished the course, they did the job, and they will be in his kingdom. What could be better than that? So when he finally pulls the plug on you, it'll be a good thing. Some of us have almost had our pull, plug pulled. And God didn't let it happen. Because he wasn't finished with us yet, or we had more work to do, or whatever. So here we are, still plugging along. Plug still in. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He's always there. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We might separate ourselves from Him and our love toward Him, but His love toward us cannot be separated. Very plain. He loves you no matter what. You know, I'm sometimes really thankful for that, that His love is that powerful, that strong, that enduring, that we in our earthen vessels need His love. Because sometimes we don't do what Paul says. We get troubled and we get distressed. Sometimes we get persecuted and feel forsaken. Sometimes perplexed and go into despair. Because of our humanness. But he says, hey, that's not the way it ought to be. Here's the way it ought to be. And for the most part, we're still here. We're still enduring to the end because we have followed the formula. When we get troubled, we go to Him so we're not distressed. We have perplexities, confusions. We don't despair because we can turn to God. Persecuted, but not forsaken of God. Cast down, but not destroyed. We can be thrown on our faces. We can be put down. We can be misused and abused, but not destroyed. If we respond to Him. But we've seen a lot of people destroyed, have we not, spiritually? Because they didn't respond properly. 
when Christ kicked us out of a more or less peaceful congregation and worldwide, many did not turn to him, but despaired and were destroyed spiritually. That's not the way to go. Here's the way to go. Verse 10, always bearing about in the body the dying of the eternal Emmanuel, that the life also of Emmanuel might be made manifest in our body. So here he says, we will have all these troubles, but we're not going to be destroyed because we always have in mind the fact that Christ died for us. And that we can receive peace and joy in that. And that we might manifest what he went through in our own bodies, fleshly though we are. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Emmanuel's sake. What did Paul say? I die daily. I crucify the flesh. So that which we are in an earthen vessel with a fleshly mind, has to die daily. And we're always delivered to death for his sake. That which is normally us, that which is the deceitful, wretched human mind, has to be destroyed, controlled, put down, uh, squashed and diminished every day. So we're delivered to death. For his sake, that the life also of Emmanuel might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So he says, I've given you my spirit. You're in an earthen vessel. You have a physical fleshly mind that's pulling you down. And I want you to conquer it that the glory of my life might be shown in your body and mind. This is a miracle. This is beyond human. You can't do what he just said here as a human being on your own. It has to come through the power of he who lives. So then death works in us, but life in you. He says death works in all of us. We all tend to sin. The penalty of sin is death. Our minds go toward fleshly ways which lead to death. That's why he says, let this mind be in you that is in Christ Emmanuel. That there might be life in you. We have the same spirit of faith. According it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Now, he's quoting directly from David here. And I want to go back to Psalm 116 and read that whole psalm in connection with what we're reading here and what Paul is explaining to us. Because he may quote one line from this, but the whole context and the whole point that Paul is driving at is back here in Psalm 116. I love the Eternal because He has heard my voice and my supplications. We tend to look to God and love Him 
when he hears our voice in the prayers that we send up to him, that helps our love toward him because we recognize there is a greater power there who can help us. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. Now, we all have had times when we know God has heard our prayers. I don't think anyone here could say they haven't experienced that. Now, we haven't maybe experienced it every time we prayed or in the way that we prayed or the way we wanted, but I don't think you can deny that he has inclined his ear to us and helped us in times of distress and trouble, as Paul was talking about. The sorrows of death compassed me, and the pains of hell got hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. I think Paul had probably read this just before he wrote what he did there in Second Corinthians 4. Then called I upon the name of the Eternal. O Lord, I beseech you, deliver my soul. We're always delivered, not destroyed. Then called I upon the name of the Eternal. O Eternal, I beseech you, deliver my soul. He had many times when he could have physically have died. His own sons wanted to kill him. Some of the generals in his army wanted to kill him. Some of the regular citizens wanted to kill him. There are a lot of people who hated David with a passion. Great passion. And were trying to take over and wanted him dead. Gracious is the eternal and righteous, yea, our God is merciful. The eternal preserves the simple. I was brought low, and he helped me. And he did have some very low points in his life because of other circumstances and or his own sins or somebody else's. And yet God was always there to help him. When he prayed his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, God forgave him. And he continued in his kingship and was a blessing to Israel. Return unto your rest, O my soul, for the Eternal has dealt bountifully with you. So he was getting distressed and perplexed, right? He says, return to your rest, O my soul, to peace, to not perplexity and trouble, but Rest in God, because God has dealt bountifully with you, O my soul. So be thankful. Be so thankful. For you've delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. So he was in conditions that would have caused all the above, and yet God saved him out of it. Do we really realize that all men who survive and are in the kingdom of God, will eternally be in debt to God. Eternally in debt. Now, on the surface, that sounds like a bad thing. Because if you're in debt, you owe credit cards, or you owe uh, for a car, for a house, or for whatever you owe, then you have your creditors who are just waiting to send you a letter the minute you're behind. 
And they make you feel uncomfortable. They make you feel like you're being untreated unfairly sometimes. Sometimes they bills, the bills they send you seem too big for what you were doing. So when we're in debt, as human beings normally in society, that debt hangs on us. It's always there. I need a better job so I can pay my debts off. And then we get a better job and we spend all the extra to get more in debt. And people can't live within their means, it seems, anymore. They spend whatever they get and more. I know of people who make $100,000, $200,000 a year who are terribly in debt and are perplexed because they can't live within their means. That's not the kind of debt we're going to be under. The debt we will have It won't be payments or worry, but we owe Him forevermore faithfulness and loyalty and love because of what He's given us and what He is about to give us. It is a debt of thanksgiving. It is a debt of love. It is a debt of loyalty and faithfulness forevermore because of what Christ and the Father have done for us. And we want always to have that attitude so we will never rebel against him. Always to be thankful. And David is describing his thankfulness here toward God who prevented a lot of tears and his feet from falling. What does he tell us he's going to do to us? He's going to deliver us from all pain and all sorrow and all tears and death and all the things that have troubled us on this earth, we're going to be delivered from. They'll no longer exist. Wouldn't you think you would owe a great debt of loyalty and faithfulness to anyone who could take everything negative from you and give you nothing but positivity in return? Wow. I will walk before the eternal in the land of the living. Not under a cloud of death, but in the land of the living. I believed, therefore have I spoken. I was greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. I mean, everything around him looked bad. He had enemies coming out of the woodwork, day in and day out. Different ones. Different ones, different ones, all the time. What shall I render to the Eternal for all His benefits toward me? He says, I've gone through so much garbage on this earth, and God is delivering me. What can I do? Verse 13, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Eternal. I will pay my vows to the Eternal now in the presence of all His people. He says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do for what God has done for me. I'm going to shout it to the skies. I'm going to say it in the presence of all the people. I've seen, so I'm going to speak. 
That's Paul, what Paul was saying here. The world is blind, but you have seen. You may still be earthly and you still may have problems, but you've seen the light of the glory of God. You've seen how His Spirit has acted. So speak. Speak of it one to another. Encourage one another when somebody's down of the things that you know of God, that you've seen of God, of answers that you've had from God, to encourage them toward the answers that they need as well. David is showing an incredible attitude here. Precious in the sight of the eternal is the death of his saints. Well, that's the one I was referring to. Precious. I guess not joyful. I I used the wrong word. But it's precious to him. Before my wife died, I told her, you're the most precious thing on this earth to me. Several times. And I was watching her die. And I saw the most precious thing in my life slipping away. I mean, precious is a human thing. The Spirit of God is more precious. God is more precious. But he sees the death of his saints as precious. It's something special to him. For, O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant and the son of your handmaid. You have loosed my bonds. All those things that held me down, that made me uncomfortable, that perplexed, destroyed, hurt me. You've loosened it all. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving, thankful throughout all eternity, having taken hold of the salvation of God, and will call upon the name of the Eternal. I won't just make vows, I will pay my vows to the Eternal now in the presence of all His people. In the courts of the Eternal's house, in the sight of you, O Jerusalem, Praise you the eternal. We've seen these things. Why does Paul refer to this? Because he was trying to get across the exact same thing that we just read David to say. We believe, and therefore we speak. Knowing that he which raised up the eternal, Emmanuel, shall raise up us also by Emmanuel... And shall present us with you. We're all going to be in this together as the 144,000. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace, not cheap, not rare, but the abundant grace that God gives, might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. He receives all the glory for the salvation that is being worked in us. For which cause we faint not. We don't faint. He takes no pleasure in those who shrink back, as Paul wrote in Hebrews. But though our outward man perish, we get old, we get feeble, we ultimately die. Or sometimes we die quickly. But we don't faint. Because even though our outward man may be perishing, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. We go to God to renew the feelings 
that Paul expresses here that David expressed in Psalm 116. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What we're going through here may be tough for us at times, but in reality it's a light affliction compared to what we are to receive from it. So buck up. Quit yourself like a man. Gird up your loins. Isn't that what God told Job? Come on, stand up here and answer me. What have I given you? What are you doing with it? Do you recognize my power? Do you know that I can save you and that I will? Do you accept my salvation? Do you live and walk as if it is going to happen? While we look not at the things which are seen, but to the things which are not seen. We can worry about what's around us, but that's not what we're looking to. We're looking at the things that are not yet seen, the glory that shall be. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now there is where faith has to come in. Because you can look around, as Peter did, at the wind and the waves and sink. Or you can look at Christ and live in eternal glory.